Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, the editor of The Lancet Psychiatry. Today, we're going to be talking about the lost generation of adults with autism spectrum conditions, how they can be identified, and the help and support which they might need. I'm joined in the studio by Hannah Cagney, who's the senior editor. Hello. And I have the authors of this very interesting review paper, which we've just published, uh, joining us on the phone. Would you like to introduce yourselves? This is Meng Chen Lai. I'm a child psychiatrist and autism researcher at the Autism Research Center, University of Cambridge, and Center for Addiction and Mental Health at Toronto. And this is Simon Baron-Cohen, also at the Autism Research Center at the University of Cambridge, and working in the NHS, the National Health Service, in a clinic for adults with autism. Thank you. Now, my first question uh, is... Maybe a bit of a basic one, but I think it's something which a lot of people would want to ask, which is that if uh, individuals have got through childhood and into adult life without a diagnosis of an autism spectrum condition, what benefit comes from picking up the diagnosis at this stage? So maybe I could start by answering that one. Because what we find in our clinic is that people come as adults for the first time, wondering whether this diagnosis might fit them and their life. But they're coming at a point when they've really been wondering, why am I different? Why do I feel on the margins? Uh, Why have I always felt that I don't fit in? And even getting the diagnosis in adulthood, sometimes in midlife, um, having that word you know, the diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, for example, can suddenly mean that all of those feelings of confusion, all of those questions of why am I different, how am I different, all suddenly fall into place. There's a single word that can summarize a difference in their development. I guess uh, the other issue, as we summarized in the review, is really about the clinical aspect of things. We understand that um, people on the spectrum, growing up as an adult, might already develop a range of um, mental health issues and challenges. So they might have already received some other mental health diagnosis before a formal assessment of autism. So um, having them accurately or uh, comprehensively assessed for its diagnosis actually helps a lot in understanding their mental health challenges and then provides a better understanding of how and why they have these challenges and actually that will help provide them with the better services that they should have. I, I would completely agree with that because the diagnosis is really just the beginning. It's the starting point of a clinical pathway because if people need a diagnosis, it also means that they need help. But that diagnosis can help clarify that let's say they've had a previous diagnosis of depression. Well, maybe this was depression that was secondary to undiagnosed autism or Asperger's syndrome. So it's giving clarity, a signpost to the relevant support. That's very interesting, Simon, because As you say, a lot of these patients have previously been engaged with mental health services and in some cases can have some quite severe effects on their day-to-day life by symptoms. How is it that we have this cohort of adults who are only getting a clinical diagnosis now when they're older rather than when they were children? Yeah, I mean, really it's an accident of history, an accident of of when they were born because uh, we only really learned about Asperger's syndrome in the mid-1990s in terms of of it becoming uh, widely talked about. 
new diagnostic condition. You know, if there are people out in the community who were born uh, long before that, in the 1980s or 70s or even earlier, we just didn't know about Asperger's syndrome. So that's why we, we use this phrase, the lost generation, in the title of our paper, because those individuals may have had all the features, all the symptoms of Asperger's syndrome, but the professionals didn't have a category for it. Uh, we didn't have a name for it. And so those individuals just struggled, may have been picking up other diagnostic labels along the way of anxiety disorders or depression or personality disorders. And we discussed all of this in our review about uh, to what extent those other labels might be relevant even with this new diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome or whether some of this might be misdiagnosed. There was um, something which I found very interesting in this paper, which is this concept of camouflaging. And uh, Meng Chun, I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about that, about the idea that people with autism spectrum conditions might almost learn to hide it. Yeah, this is a phenomenon um, that's actually described a lot by uh, the autism community themselves. So we learned a lot from um, teenagers or adults on the spectrum telling us how they cope with the stresses that they have during social situations. So for example, a, they might learn to keep their eye contact during the whole conversation or to use some kind of learned phrases or jokes um, to, to continue the conversation or they would like imitate others' facial expression and trying to practice that by watching movie or TV show and try to, to use these learned skills to sort of like survive uh, in a social situation. But these are all quite stressful experiences for adults on the spectrum and we often heard from them that they can camouflage for or cope with social situations for um, a brief period of time but they're usually exhausted after that, and it's very stressful for them. Um, so this is a very important phenomenon because if one clinician or diagnostician trying to diagnose an individual on the spectrum only by the perception they have interacting with them, uh, without being aware that they might have already learned strategies to mask their difficulties, they might have missed their difficulties unless they ask these individuals explicitly their experiences coping. So I guess this is just um, a one point that clinicians have to be aware that there are a variety of behavior presentations of individuals on the spectrum, especially for higher people with more experiences interacting with others socially and they learn strategies through the way they develop. Okay. I'd just like to follow up on that with a question to Simon. We've just heard about the difficulties in, in diagnosis, and I wonder, are there any particular difficulties depending on whether the person who's consulting you is a man or a woman, and might there be some different challenges there? Well, following on from what Meng Chuan was saying, effectively, if, if people can hide their autism, and you know, uh, we might kind of raise the question of why are they trying to do this, it means that you can't necessarily rely on behavior, on outward behavior, to make the diagnosis. So Meng Chuan was saying that many people might develop these camouflaging strategies. And it may be because there's, there's a lot of social pressure to conform. And uh, maybe that's why they're trying to hide it. Maybe there's some stigma attached to autism. The person themselves, doesn't, they don't feel that they can be themselves. They have to act as if they're 
like everybody else. And there may be some gender differences in that. You know, it may be that this is something that research is just starting to look at, that maybe females on the spectrum are more motivated. Maybe there's more social pressure to uh, hide autism symptoms. And there are two very interesting books that have been written by people with autism. We really learn a lot from listening to the patients. The one has the title Pretending to be Normal, and that's written by a woman with autism, and uh, she's also a mother of children with autism. But it just kind of sums it up, pretending to be normal, you know, that this pressure. And the other one came out uh, written by a man with autism, and the title was Look Me in the Eye. And it's this phrase that maybe he's heard over and over again in his childhood, look me in the eye, you know, that, that parents might be telling their child to make eye contact. It's almost like a command that we place so much importance on it. And children with autism often find it very aversive, very stressful and unpleasant to look at other maybe because other people's eyes are confusing and it's kind of driving up their stress and their anxiety if they don't understand eye contact and how the eyes can express emotions and so forth. But the idea that we might be forcing children to do this when they don't feel comfortable to do it, all of these might contribute to how some people on the spectrum may be hiding their autism. Well, it's very interesting that you talk about autism very much as a spectrum. And one of the things that I really enjoyed that you teased out in your paper was this proposing of autism spectrum conditions and individuals with autistic traits, which may be helpful in some situations, may be unhelpful. And then within that, a sort of a a subcategory, if you like, of autism disorder in medical contexts in which uh, individuals have difficulties causing their daily functioning. In terms of the numbers affected, what sort of numbers are we talking about here in terms of people with perhaps who might need a clinical diagnosis and others who might have autistic traits but might not necessarily meet or need a clinical threshold? I can probably start by the numbers and Simon you can add on to Mm. the interpretation. So the quick answer is that we only know that in England the only epidemiological study about adults on the spectrum is that if you define autism by um, their clinical diagnosis and also the uh, behavior presentation uh, measured by the semi-structured interview, then the prevalence rate in the community is something between 1% to 1.5%. And these, uh, these are the rates for people who, who will get at the clinical diagnosis, who not necessarily get that diagnosis before the research, but they who fit the diagnostic criteria. But to an extent that there are people in the community who have high autistic traits, but not, not necessarily having the need for a clinical diagnosis is still unknown. And we don't have epidemiological data to date, I believe. So Meng Chuan gave the figure of 1% to 1.5% of the population. And you know, I think that comes out in a lot of studies internationally. It's around that, that level. So it's much more common than we previously thought. So when I started out in this field, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we thought that autism was very rare. And the the textbooks from those days said it was 4 in 10,000, whereas now it's like 1 in 100. And the latest figures from the Center for Disease Control in the U.S., this is autism spectrum in children, was 1 in 68 children. More common in males than females, that still seems to be uh, coming through in, in the recent studies, 
and uh, separately we, we look at some of the biological factors that might be contributing to why there's a difference in the sex ratio, as well as some social factors that might mean that we might have more difficulty diagnosing autism in females. Uh, but you raised, Hannah, the issue about terminology, I think, because we do discuss this in the paper, that the internationally accepted terminology is now autism spectrum disorder, ASD. And we make a very specific point in the paper that we prefer and choose to use a different term, which is autism spectrum condition. So rather than disorder, we use the term condition. So it's still picking out that this is a medical diagnosis, that people don't get the diagnosis unless they're struggling and need services. But we think the term condition is less stigmatizing to tell someone they have a disorder is quite hard-hitting. And we also think it's capturing that autism does entail disability, no question, that these are people struggling in the social aspects of their life. But it's not just about disability, it's also about difference, that some aspects of autism don't lead to disability. They may even lead to a different way of thinking, a different way of processing information that can result in talent. So for all those reasons, the word disorder doesn't quite fit, we think. The, the other term that you mentioned was autistic traits, and that's just picking up on this notion that now many scientists acknowledge, which is that autism isn't categorical. You just, it, it's not that you either have it or don't have it. It comes by degrees, and that those traits, those uh, features that make up autism, they blend into the general population. We all have some autistic traits, and it's just a matter of degree that if you have a lot of traits, you might need diagnosis. There's this phrase which you use in the paper, which is person-environment fit, and you give a few examples of how people with autism spectrum conditions can fit into certain environments extremely well. Yeah, it's not taking away from the fact that autism is ultimately biomedical. We know that there's a, a significant genetic component for example, and it affects the way the brain develops. But we're saying that the disability is partly a function of the environment you find yourself in. If you're in a, an environment that makes a lot of social demands on you and that's, uh, where there's an expectation to communicate, uh, maybe the disability will show itself more. If you're in an environment where you can use those aspects of autism which may be very positive, for example, fantastic attention to detail, being able to stay on one task for long periods and really go into, into depth into a topic, so-called obsessions. You know, in some environments, they may not be disabilities. They may allow the individual's talents to flourish. So that in that sense, it's a person-environment fit. I guess the idea of person-environment fit uh, follow Simon's discussion, has um, very important implications in support and intervention as well. Because in the past, when one was diagnosed having a medical disorder, the treatment tends to focus on the individual, mainly. But for people on the spectrum, uh, having a diagnosis of autism spectrum condition, whether there's a disability actually is a function of the fit between the person and environment. So in other words, Instead of saying that the support or intervention is to treat the individual, it's probably better to say that it's to help improve the person environment fit. So the treatment 
might aim at treating the environment rather than treating the Absolutely. person, him yeah. or herself. Yeah, and that's you know that's a very radical idea. You know that you don't necessarily change the person; you change the environment that the person is in. And well, we could think of of parallels. You know, for um, people who are blind, that the traffic lights now make a sound when the lights change from red to green, or when it's safe to cross. So we've changed the environment to make sure that people who are blind can be included in public places. And the same thing might also apply to autism. That once we know which triggers in the environment make uh, things a lot worse for people with autism, we can build that into how we design environments. And a good example for, in autism is fluorescent lighting. It seems to flicker at a particular rate that's, again, very aversive or unpleasant for people with autism. So if we want to make sure that people with autism are comfortable in the workplace or in the educational setting, we need to think about things as basic as the kind of lighting that we use. That's very interesting because it almost goes against the way that, that psychiatry has tended in its history, which is always towards going for personal change, so in interior feelings or external behaviour. And this is really about changing and adapting the environment around a person, which is, is quite a, a shift. And I'd like to sort of throw the discussion over to you personally now and really to ask you both about where you would like this whole field to be in five years' time and ten years' time and what you see as being the challenges, whether they're um, social challenges or technical challenges challenges in getting there? This is a great question because we're sort of being invited to, to shape the future. And uh, one response, I think, is about destigmatizing autism. I think there's still, people are a little bit reluctant to come out and say, I have autism, which must mean that there's still some stigma there. And I don't think that's true for, for other disabilities as much, you know, that if you take something like dyslexia, Maybe in the early days, people were a bit sort of wary of it, but now it's just seen as very ordinary that in every primary school, there'll be some kids who have dyslexia, and it's no big deal. And that's where we'd like things to be for autism, too. So if it really is the case that one in 68, some studies suggest it may be even higher than that, you know, have autism, whether it's in children or in, indeed in this lost generation of adults, they should be able to go to say to their employer, I have autism, and these are the kinds of, uh, of changes that would be quite reasonable to ask for in the workplace to make it possible for me to really contribute and be included in work or in other public spaces. I guess for me, the, the mystery of autism is probably the, the variety between the individuals who got the label. So although we use the single term autism or autism spectrum condition to refer to um, this clinical entity, uh, we, we now clearly know that it's a, it's a syndrome and it's containing uh, lots of different subgroups. So the heterogeneity of autism still is a myth to the whole field. So I guess one point that people need to, or I mean autism researchers need to understand more is the individual differences. Uh, for people on the spectrum, and that actually fits very well to the whole trend of individualized medicine, because now we, we know that if we understand individual uh, characteristics more clearly, then we will be better able to provide um, support and interventions or even treatments for their mental health challenges that are meeting better with their uh, needs. So understanding more about the subgroups 
within the spectrum. For example, what are the similarities and differences between males and females? What are the similarities and differences between those diagnosed in childhood versus those uh, diagnosed in adulthood? Um, all these issues still need to be addressed in larger scale studies so we can have a better idea of the whole spectrum. I think the, the idea of spectrum is not only about the idea of severity as it is proposed by the new DSM-5. The spectrum actually is about heterogeneity. It's not one-dimensional. It's about variability. And this is really the, the idea that um, Lona Wing proposed already several decades ago, that we have to understand uh, how different uh, individuals with the labels are, but not just uh, see all of them as homogenous. And if I could just sort of add to the wish list, I guess, of what we might hope to see in five or ten years' time, hopefully sooner, is first of all, I think probably improved diagnosis. So in our clinic, we try to do the diagnosis as quickly as possible because like in every health service, there's pressure of time. But we really can't do it in less than two hours. And if we were really taking our time to do it um, very thoroughly, it might even be three hours as an assessment for one patient. And you know, maybe that's, there's no way around that, but it may be that with research, we'll come up with very precise tests that have good specificity, sensitivity, to really be able to pick out autism or Asperger's syndrome very quickly. So that's one thing, it's very practical. But the other thing really is about um, what we can offer people with autism at any age childhood or adulthood and at the moment you get your diagnosis and then very often you're just left and you know even though we've got legislation we've got the, in this country we have the autism act and at the department of health's autism strategy which legislates that there should be a pathway of support the reality is that for many patients with autism or their families they're, they're just left and so we really need to have much more practical services in place. And I've just come back actually from the Netherlands where they're talking about every adult with autism should have a personal coach or mentor. The idea that that might be something that you might need all your life. You may not need to see them every day, but at least there'd be one person that you could call when you're having a crisis and you're having what people with autism sometimes call a meltdown and it might be in any situation when you're at the supermarket, in a crowded train station, um, or in any other situation, who do you call? And the idea that for people with autism, the intervention, if you like, might be to have a trusted, familiar person who can understand how you are different and to be able to help you with the anxiety that is inevitably going to be part of dealing with unexpected changes in your life. Well, there are likely to be at least a few people listening who might feel that the issues talked about today among us or in the paper could apply to them or members of their family. What services and assessments are available for those sorts of people? So uh, anyone listening who is wondering whether they might have autism or whether their child might have autism we would always encourage them to, to go to their GP, first step. And GPs are becoming a lot more alert to autism. The Royal College of GPs now has an autism champion. I'm very pleased about that. 
to make sure that GPs are being trained to recognize autism. And there are also the voluntary sector. There's the National Autistic Society in the UK, but similar charities uh, in other countries that often have helplines, very useful websites to signpost people to support groups. And I guess because of the uh, increasing awareness of the diagnosis of autism, especially in adults, particularly that we talked in the paper that uh, now the new American psychiatric diagnosis system, the DSM-5, actually explicitly allows for formal diagnosis of autism in in adulthood. Because of all these increased awareness, there are uh, across different countries, there are increasing specialist assessment clinics for adults in autism. And as far as I know, in the workplace I, I've been to in the UK, in Canada, in Taiwan, in Japan, we all have these specialized clinics. So after the referral from GP, I think there will be increasing numbers uh, of accurate and improved diagnosis procedures for people suspected to be on the spectrum. And after the diagnosis, they should be able to be referred to adequate support services. Thank you, Meng Chen. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, of course, to Hannah and to you, the listener, for downloading this edition of the podcast. That's all that we have time for today, but we hope that you will join us again next time for another podcast. But for now, goodbye.